Hello everyone and welcome to the Wilds Cast. Today's episode is a rebroadcast of a special Facebook Live event. On Tuesday night, June 9th, the Manhattan Jewish Experience hosted a panel discussion on racism in America. Rabbi Wilds was joined by Reverend Joseph Ford, the senior pastor of Faith Tabernacle Missionary Baptist Church in Stamford, Connecticut, and Eric Adams, the borough president of Brooklyn. They had an important and thoughtful conversation about the terrible tragedy surrounding the death of George Floyd. Okay, it looks like we're live. Um, want to welcome everyone to this very, very special, uh, important segment and part of MGE programming. We are uh, extraordinarily privileged to have with us two wonderful leaders from the African-American, from the black community that I am so honored and privileged to be able to talk to uh, Borough President Eric Adams and Reverend Dr. Joseph G. Ford. Um, I've never had the opportunity to speak to these gentlemen, but their reputation precedes them. And given everything that has happened in our crazy world, um, we thought it appropriate at MGE to be able to reach out and to hear from leaders in the community and get their perspective on what is happening and really what we uh, in the Jewish community, those of us tuning in to MGE, are uh, really concerned about the situation and want to make sure that we can be not simply spectators, but participants in whatever positive reform and change that could be made in our society. So I want to begin by um, welcoming our special guest. I want to introduce each one and, um, and just enter into a friendly conversation and get to know you both and hear your perspectives and get some wisdom uh, we will also have the opportunity to be able to uh, hear then from uh, you, the watchers and listeners, you'll be able to uh, ask some questions. I know Maya is going to be sending some questions along. Um, let's introduce first Reverend Dr. Joseph Ford, is a native of Detroit, Michigan. In 2009, Dr. Ford received his Master of Divinity degree from Princeton Theology Seminary. He was licensed and ordained into the gospel ministry at New Hope Baptist Church in New Jersey under the leadership of Reverend Dr. Ronald L. Owens. And it was at that place that he served as youth minister, and he also served as second vice president for the Middlesex Central Baptist Association Congress of Christian Education, and has facilitated youth and youth worker seminaries throughout the state representing the General Baptist Convention of New Jersey. He is today the senior Baptist, uh, excuse me, the senior pastor uh, at Faith Tabernacle in Stamford, Connecticut. And I'd like to thank uh, Benjamin Cohen and my dear friend, Rabbi Donnie Cohen, who's a rabbi in Stamford and has a relationship uh, with Reverend Ford. Welcome, Reverend Ford. Thank you, thank you for having me. Pleasure, and Borough President Eric Adams, we thank you for joining as well. Graduated from the New York City Police Academy in 1984 uh, as one of the highest ranked students in his class. Uh, we feel privileged to speak with a black leader who was also a member of the police force, uh, a very well established and distinguished member of the police force. And during the course of his 22 year law enforcement career, Eric served in the 94th precinct, which is in Greenpoint, 
uh, at the 88th precinct, Clinton Hill in Fort Greene, and also at the 6th precinct in Greenwich Village in West Village, where he retired at the rank of captain. As a member of New York City's finest, uh, Eric made the kind of life and death decisions that reflect his expertise and insights and poise under fire, earning him a reputation for going up and above the call of duty. Uh, back in 1995, Eric co-founded an organization, which is really an advocacy group called 100 Blacks in Law Enforcement Who Care. That's a long title, <laughs> packs a punch though. 100 Blacks in Law Enforcement Who Care. I cannot think of a more relevant group for our situation today, which is an advocacy group that rose to nationwide prominence uh, speaking out against police brutality, against racial profiling and departmental diversity. Uh, Eric was elected to the first of four terms in the New York State Senate in 2006, where he represented a diverse range of neighborhoods across Brownstone and Central Brooklyn. Uh, during his tenure in the state legislature, he chaired both the Veterans Homeland Security, Military Affairs Committee, and the Racing, Gaming, and Wagering Committee. And in 2013, Brooklynites elected Eric as the first person of color to serve as their borough president. He is currently serving his second term as uh, Brooklyn's chief executive. What an honor and pleasure to have you both with us. Thank you for joining. Uh, let's get right into a little of your backgrounds. All I did was mouth off your very impressive bios, both of you. Uh, what I'd like to ask, just to start with, if it's okay, is to ask how and why each of you got into the work, into the very important work that you are doing. Um, and then we can, when we know a little more about you, we can then dive into some of the issues. Uh, let's start with the Reverend. No offense to Eric, but you know, people of faith, we favor each other sometimes. <laughs> Yes, well, thank you so much. Uh, the reason I got into what I do, uh, I believe that it is a divine calling for God, from God. Um, I have a love for God and a love for people. Uh, and so it only goes that uh, theology would be something that I would study. Uh, I come from a long line of ministers and pastors. My dad is a pastor, my mom, as a minister as well. And so I've seen nothing throughout my life but serving people. Uh, and so that's that's where I am. I'm a servant. God has called me to serve uh, for such a time as this. Well, thank you. Thank you so much. And Eric? Uh, my, my career started uh, many years ago without even realizing this. Uh, as a young man, I was arrested and beaten uh, badly by police officers. And it wasn't until my early teenage years that I realized that the trauma of that beating and the loss of my innocence in the gave way to a group of civil rights leaders asking me to go into law enforcement, something I did not want to do. I was a computer programmer and I wanted to opened my own computer firm, but it was out of the respect of losing a young man named Randolph Bevins. He was shot and killed by police that, that they asked me to go into policing. And I went in and was committed to police reform and building a relationship with the police in our communities. And I've been committed to that 
throughout my entire life, over 40 years of really trying to transform law enforcement. And it brought me to where I am now today. That is incredible. Um, can I ask you just what motivated you, uh, what motivated you, Eric, to um, just not be angry? So angry you don't have, you want to have nothing to do with law enforcement. Um, I'm not sure who's typing. I don't think that's any of our panelists. It might be um, uh, Binyamin. I'm not sure. Whoever's typing, if you could either mute yourself or not type, that would be wonderful. <laughs> Sorry about that. Um, so Eric, tell us a little, and, and then I would like to hear from the Reverend, what exactly, um, what, what kind of experiences that you, that you have in your youth uh, in terms of racism? But let's go back to Eric in terms of what you just shared with us. What gave you the, I don't know if it's optimism or really the courage to enter law enforcement after having that kind of experience? And can you, can you detail that experience a little more if it's not too painful? And, and I was angry. I was angry for some times. Uh, the officers, after they arrested my brother and I, they were filling out the arrest paperwork. And out of nowhere, they just said, do you feel like a beat down? And they brought us downstairs, had us handcuffed, lied us on the floor, and just repeatedly kicked us in our groin over and over again. And I, I remember just yelling out. And I remember when I saw the face of the officer that took the life of George Floyd, I saw that same look on the face of the officers that assaulted us. And no matter how much we cried out and asked them to stop and yelled, hoping someone in the precinct would hear it, it didn't happen. And so that was a loss of innocence. And from probably 15 to 23, I didn't, I didn't realize it, but I was experiencing PTSD. Every time I saw a police car, I relived that encounter. Every time I saw a police movie, <clears throat> I relived the encounter, and even when I heard a siren, I would relive the encounter. And so it was a lot of anger, and there was a lot of distrust, and it was built-up anger. And it wasn't until I went into the police department with the mission that those elders understood more than I did that I had a demon inside me, and the only way to get that demon of anger out of me was to go back into the agency that put, put it in me. And I turned that pain into purpose. And I became committed and dedicated to looking at how we can make policing a place for good. And in, in the process, I came across some of the finest people I know in my life who have, are willing to give their life to public service. And we just need to make sure that those who don't share that same passion do not erode or destroy a noble career such as law enforcement. That's extraordinary. Um, Reverend, what, 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 what would you, if you'd like to share anything about your own uh, personal upbringing or encounters with racism or just comment on what Eric just shared, please go ahead. I, I think we're, I think you're on mute, Reverend. Oh, okay. Okay. Uh, first off, I don't think it's, it's not unusual for African-American males to have negative uh, uh, contact with police officers. I'll give you two that comes to my mind right away. 
Uh, the first happened when I was about 16 years old. Uh, my brother was trailing my mother to take the car to, uh, to the dealership in Pennsylvania. Uh, and out of nowhere, three cop cars came behind us and began uh, to trail us, putting on their lights. Uh, we pulled over, and when we pulled over, cops came drawn with their weapons out, uh, telling us to keep our hands on the dashboard. Uh, my mom had pulled over as well, and she got out the car yelling, those are my sons. Well, they pulled us over because they thought my brother was too young and he had stolen a car. Uh, and so on the mere suspicion of that, um, we were, they, they tried to take us in. Luckily, everything was squashed. We were able to continue on. But that was a traumatic experience to have guns drawn on you for what for you don't even know what's going on or why uh and so that was a traumatic experience i will say another experience that happened to me i was about 18 years old uh again minding my own business driving uh actually going to the store for my dad to get some bread and i was pulled over when i asked why was i pulled over the cop said i looked suspicious um i don't know what that means uh, looking suspicious and from the best I could take from it is because I was a young black guy driving in a pretty nice neighborhood. Uh, I grew up in high, I went to school, I was in Highland Park, New Jersey at the time. Uh, and But I was looking suspicious, that's what he told me. I followed everything he asked me to do uh, at the time. Uh, he even asked to search my car. I said, no problem. Uh, he went as far as to take his flashlight and shine down my pants, which was a humiliating experience. And all the while I knew that I had to take all of this because if I made a move at that moment, it could mean my life. And so I took it uh, and eventually the cops let me go. But afterwards, directly after it happened, called my dad, got with my pastor at the time and we went to the police station to make a report afterwards uh, as to what had happened. Uh, and so when we talk about uh, racism, it is real and it is very likely that especially if you are African-American male, that you have experienced it in one form or another. Rabbi Wiles, you're on mute. Now I'm on mute. Uh, somebody muted me. Let me see. Uh, audio. Okay, You're can you hear me? Okay, yes. great. Thank you. Uh, thank you both for sharing that. Um, you know, it's uh, it's a little different, you know, um, in the Jewish community. We have, as you know, I'm sure you're well acquainted with all of the persecution to which Jews have been subject. But, you know, growing up in New York, I had a little anti-Semitism wearing this kippah but I think very, very different than what both of you experienced. Um, I wanted to ask you, and Eric, maybe we'll start with you because you mentioned uh, George Floyd. Um, you went through PTSD on your own experience and it looks like Floyd, and it sounds like from what I'm hearing from both of you is that what happened to George Floyd is really just the latest in a long line of similar stories of police brutality. Um, tell us a little how you think things have improved in the police force or not improved 
And let me ask this to both of you. Why do you think this time feels different or, or doesn't it? That's a, that's a question that is asked often. And I believe that it's a combination of things and probably the largest thing is coronavirus. Coronavirus has become the great equalizer. And as I move around my borough, which is extremely diverse, 47% of the borough speaks a language other than English at home. I have the largest Jewish population outside of Israel. And it's extremely diverse with young people who are here in the borough. And when you look at the marches now, you'll see that there are a large number of the participants are white, young and white. I believe that coronavirus devastated the lives of a countless number of young white people. Uh, they know what it feels like to be furloughed, to lose your job. They know what it feels like to go to school and get a secondary degree and then find yourself unemployable. What it feels like to not be able to pay your rent, the fear of being thrown out of your home. I've seen young white children and youth and families on food pantry lines. I think that many whites that have ignored what has happened to blacks for years because George Floyd is not the first African-American that said he couldn't breathe. Eric Gardner said he couldn't breathe uh, in Staten Island. That wasn't a thousand miles away. I think many, many whites in New York through coronavirus, they feel black now. When they hear Black Lives Matter, they're looking at their lives. They see what we endured throughout our lives. My life and my family and my mom, we knew every month we thought the person was going to come and throw our property out of our home. We knew what it is to be denied. And I think that it's not that all of a sudden America has found the conscious. I think that many young whites and older whites realize the fear that coronavirus equalized all of us, that they see what it is to be black in America because the reality they're facing now, black Americans have faced all their lives. It's such an interesting commentary on Corona. And um, um, Reverend, would, would you agree with that? Do you think that Corona has, is the great equalizer like Eric is, is, is sharing? So I would say that Corona has helped, uh, but I would not say it's the equalizer because the truth of the matter is that 50% of the deaths that occur uh, is African-American. Uh, African-Americans are dying more than any other minority group when it comes to uh, COVID-19. That's because there are underlining issues. Those underlining issues really are a result of the results of racism and what has happened for 400 years since slavery that uh, we now have health underlining health issues. So when we talk about the coronavirus, we're talking about a group of individuals of minorities who are less likely to have health insurance so they can't go to the doctor as well. Uh, we're talking about a group who, do not, who live in who are food insecure or live in food deserts and so their diets aren't as what they should so many times they suffer with uh, 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 things like diabetes or high blood pressure and all these things aid in the higher death rates for 
African-Americans. So like I said, I believe that Corona has uh, somewhat uh, uh, helped us to have a wake-up call, but there is still a vast difference uh, in the effects of it in the African-American community uh, and in our other in the fellow white communities. Let, let, thank you. Thank you, Reverend. Let's get back to the, the police issue for a minute. Um, Eric, did you feel that you were treated differently when you were a member of the NYPD as, as a black man? Without a doubt. And I don't think it's based on my opinion. The numbers clearly show that African-Americans and Hispanic officers were, were penalized at a higher rate internally. They were fired and terminated at a higher rate, disproportionate to the number of officers on the job, promotions, assignments. That was part of the fight in the lawsuits that several of the fraternal organizations within the police department, the Hispanic Officer Society, the Guardians Association, those were fraternal organizations inside the police department. And so it was clear the lawsuits that were won time and time again showed that there was a level of racism, not only on how we police in the city, but also how we treated those officers who wore blue uniforms. Uh, the, the mere fact you wore a blue uniform or wore, wore that shield did not shield you from the racism that you experienced. And there were cases after cases that we experienced and we fought hard and we were vigilant about changing the culture of policing. And, and, and has it gotten any better? And if it hasn't, what, what do you think? I mean, you're, you're, you're speaking to a largely white audience. Um, what do you think we can do as a society to improve um, the, the culture somehow within the police force? I mean, some people are calling for just stricter uh, penalties to officers that abuse their power, uh, who express racism in, in different kinds of ways. Um, what, what, what should we be doing? What has worked also that you can share with us over the years? Well, I'm not, I, first of all, I'm extremely comfortable with sharing this concept, and I, I think truth is important and sharing it with predominantly white off audience. I like to do that a lot, uh, to bring in uh, to this real life we're experiencing. Um, I, I don't know the Reverend we just met, but with our similarities and having to have these negative encounters, far too often uh, you hear those who don't experience it on day to day, they say, well, they must have done something wrong. Here it is, the Reverend, uh, just the mere fact he was driving a car with his brother, experienced this. This is our reality. And we do not mention this reality to state that we're going to sit back and allow it to happen. No, we're going to fight. We're going to fight hard to change what is happening in America. And so when you say, I'm talking to a white audience, there's a clear difference, I find, from those who are of the Jewish faith. Uh, built into your culture, uh, is the desire to give back and to uh, show the betterness of all of us and how better we are as human beings. And so you know what struggling is just as well as we do. We've been allies for years. Um, I think far too many people outside your faith and our faith and our ethnic group understand what suffering is. Anti-Semitism was alive and well in the police department across America. And you still see, when you see those who are hateful in their thought from clans to other 
white supremacist organizations, they too go after and attack the Jewish people just as well. But when you say, what can we do? The first thing we can do is to wake up and acknowledge what is happening. And here in New York, many good people with good hearts knew that a million black and brown boys were stopped and frisked every year and they stood back and watched it happen. I think Jack Nicholson said it best inside the movie, A Few Good Men. You really can't handle the truth. People knew what the police was doing to black and brown communities and they ignored it. They sat back and said, as long as our city is safe, because we were going through a very difficult time in, America, in New York with 2,000 homicides a year, 98,000 robberies, large number of crimes, and people just wanted to be safe, even at the expense of disgrace to communities of color. And we can never allow that to happen again. Well, thank you. Reverend, would you like to weigh in? Would you like to share? There is a group uh, called Ground Zero, and they've started a project called Eight Can't Wait. Uh, and Eight Can't Wait uh, is policy change for the police. Policy, and, uh, and this has uh, police departments across the nation has began implementing uh, some of these policies. And with this uh, Eight Can't Wait, you can actually measure and track the progress of police stations. And so I would encourage uh, 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 those who are interested in knowing what you can do is to talk to your police chiefs uh, and your police officers about implementing some of these policies. Uh, number one, uh, banning chokeholds and strangleholds. Uh, requiring de-escalation, requiring for warning shots for shooting, requiring and exhausting all alternatives for shooting, uh, before shooting, uh, for police officers to intervene when they see another officer uh, doing something that is wrong, and then banning uh, move, uh, shooting at uh, moving vehicles. Uh, then you have requiring the use of force continuum and requiring comprehensive reporting for that. Uh, I know that Mayor Sylvester Turner and mayor, uh, the mayor of Houston, Texas, just signed this uh, in today that their police department will be uh, following these policies now. And I think that is one of the greatest thing we have to push for policy change within the police department. Eric, would you agree that that's something that could be effective and helpful and, and something that our community should be involved with? Well, I, I, yes, and I think those are important uh, components, but I think there's something else that's extremely important that's often overlooked. If you go back to the civil rights era, when we had segregation in our educational system, uh, black and brown parents encouraged their children to become educators so that we can educate our children. When we found disparities in our healthcare system, we encouraged black and brown physicians and doctors and young children to go to school and become healthcare professionals so we can get adequate healthcare. All over in every institution and agency and form of profession, we've encouraged black and brown children to go in to add their voice to it. The only place we have not done that is the law enforcement community in America. We've, 
we've had we have discouraged young people of color to go into law enforcement like I was encouraged to do and instructed to do. And so we actually tell young people they're sellouts, they're Uncle Toms, uh, they are violating some uh, hidden code that you should never be in law enforcement. That's a big mistake. You know, our tax dollars go to pay for police and to tell young people not to go into a noble profession and change it from within. The fight must be from outside where we change laws and, and continue to advocate, but we also must be inside. If we want great police chiefs, then let's have those young men who are Eagle Scouts in our communities or sit in our church pews. Let's encourage them to go into a noble career. You know, here you have a career in 20 years, I was able to retire. I was able to buy three homes and travel all over the globe, put my son through college without any uh, student loans. This is a noble profession. And with the right person in that profession, we could do the right thing. So we need to change the dialogue of discouraging our young people from going into law enforcement. We need to encourage them to go in and change policing from within. And that is how we get who and what we want, just as we change education, healthcare, and all other professions as well. It's, it's something I, I really haven't thought about much. Do you know, do you have any statistics like what percentage, let's say the NYPD uh, are African-Americans? Uh, extremely low and all over the globe. I don't have the exact numbers in front of me, but uh, throughout the years, um, the NYPD would tell you now that they are majority minority and they use the number of women and they use the number of other groups. The problem America has in every law enforcement agency just about across the country is their inability to recruit, hire, retain, and promote black men. And no matter how we talk about majority minority and use women as numbers to balance off or hide your inadequacies, the reality is the negative encounters police have in this country is with black men and that's the same population they fail to bring into the agency. And we need to be intentional about recruiting black men to equalize the interaction with police in the communities that they are responsible for controlling. That's incredible. Thank you for sharing that. That is something I think we all, I don't know what we could do about that uh, because, um, but it, it, it goes, you know, it makes so much sense. You know, there are different ways of attacking this problem. One of course is through legislation, you're, you're a politician, but to change the culture within the police force, uh, I, I, it, it just goes, it, it makes perfect sense. If you, if you have more black people, there'll be less ignorance um, there'll be more uh, sensitivity, hopefully, uh, and you know th th these kinds of incidents hopefully could be brought to an end. I, I want to ask you both a question that has been uh, a lot of New Yorkers feel very differently about this, um, and people throughout the country. But along with the peaceful protesters, and I think statistically the majority of people uh, protesting have been peaceful, but we know that unfortunately. There was a decent amount of, of rioting and looting. And there have been members of my own community who have been very upset with the media or with other members of different communities, black and white, who seem to give a pass to the rioting and looting because people are so angry, people want change. And therefore, on some level, um, it, it seems people are willing to, to justify or turn a blind eye um, to the further destruction of people's personal property. I know that there was a police officer uh, somebody, he, he got hit in the head 
in the face with brass knuckles just for being a cop, and this is happening all over the country. Uh, what do you both have to say? I'm, I'm interested, Reverend, on your perspective as a man of faith and uh, Eric as a former uh, member of the NYPD. Uh, let me say this. I do not condone rioting, uh, but Dr. King said that rioting is the voice of the unheard. Um, and so some of that, some of the writing, not all of it, uh, is because there are individuals who are frustrated because they've spoken out and for the longest, for 400 years, America has not been listening. But then let me say this again also, that a lot of the writing, a lot of the looting is not the African-Americans that are, who really want change, but it's those criminals who seek an opportunity. Uh, they're opportunists. They're seizing on this time to, uh, to take advantage of what's going on right now. And I think we have to stop that. Then the other is there are individuals who want to start violence uh, and who are instigators. Uh, and we need to make sure that we pay attention to that as well, uh, because there are those who will want to portray all African-Americans as criminals, as no good thugs. And when, uh, when we get together, inevitably violence will happen. And so I think we must speak out against rioting. We must speak out against looting and we have to protest peacefully. Thank you. Eric. Reverend is, uh, he said it uh, well, and uh, there were three groups uh, at the beginning of the protest here in New York, there were three groups, part of the overall uh, body of people in the street. Uh, one group was a righteous group of young people who were fighting uh, for what they believe is a righteous call for police reform. They should be protected, nurtured, and supported, and I will continue to do so while I was walking the streets and speaking to many of them. Then there were two other groups and they were both on two separate extremes. One was the body of people that were looting. Um, and I think the Rev is right. They were not looting for bread. They were not looting because they were hungry. Uh, when you break into a store and steal a Kate Spade bag or a Louis Vuitton bag, it's not doing, you're doing it out of desperation. And I, will, I don't tolerate that and I don't accept that. And you're jeopardizing the lives of the innocent, righteous people that are marching and i think that many people were criminal opportunists they came out with hammers and shopping bags they were not there to march for the righteous cause they were there for their own selfish reasons and then you had another group that many people were not aware of when i was briefed by the intelligence and counterterrorist bureau in the police department they shared with me that they were honest anarchists that came to the city for one purpose only and that was to burn our city down they had no desire of dealing with the issues that these young people who are righteously marching were talking about. They were extremely dangerous. They were well-trained. They knew how to prepare Molotov cocktails. They were burning police vehicles. They were coming with backpacks full of rocks and stones and resupplying those who were on the ground. And immediately when I became aware of that, I reached out to retired members of the New York City Police Department that was part of my organization. And I, I reached out to some of the march organizers and I started to educate them on what to look for 
and how to remove these people from their ranks that were marching with them. And I believe that as a result of that, we saw a serious decrease in the amount of violence. We stopped seeing the burning of vehicles, and we saw many of those anarchists moved out of the flow of the peaceful marches. And I think we got to a good place, and I believe we're at that good place right now. Well, I really appreciate both of what you said. Um, and I think it's important for everyone watching this to be educated because, uh, you know, when when you're just watching the news, the media doesn't make those kinds of distinctions that you, Eric, just just articulated. We just see rooting. We just see violence. And you just think it's part of the either Black Lives Matter or you think it's just part of the whole frustration that people have. And then it turns off people to the movement. I can't think of a um, of a greater stain on the on the um, the memory of the late and great Martin Luther King than people looting and rioting in the name of civil rights. That's exactly what he preached against. So I appreciate you both, um, you know, decrying the violence and you, Eric, articulating that there are different groups that just come in and co-opt that that information needs to get out. Um, you know, people need to be much more aware of that because I've spoken to people in the last couple of days who are who are who are just um, disgusted um, with what happened to George Floyd and, and, and racism that continues to rear its ugly head in this country, but then don't want to get involved with a movement that, that has these kinds of elements to it. And what you're saying is that these are foreign elements, really, that have inserted themselves um, and co-opted the movement on some level. And I, I think that's really important. And the question is, what, what can be done to I mean, I guess you started doing that. You called, you said retired police officers to try to remove some of those individuals. But I, I just want you to know that, that, you know, what I'm hearing on the street a little also is a lot of frustration with these protests because a lot of, you know, some of them ended in violence and, and in um, um, and asking that we want. So um, this is extremely, extremely important that the movement not get tainted uh, and people know who's doing what. It is. It is important. And I'm a, a believer in the philosophy of Dr. King and uh, what he lived for. I'm a believer in the philosophy of uh, Nelson Mandela. I, I saw the jail cell that he spent a substantial amount of his life when I went to uh, South Africa. I'm a believer in Gandhi. Uh, I went and visited uh, where the same location where Gandhi was assassinated and the life that he lived in his last steps. I'm a believer in nonviolence. I believe that uh, you cannot replace violence with, with violence. You, one tyrannical act to another tyrannical act is not going to take us anywhere. But also know that for far too long, uh, many people of goodwill have lived in a very comfortable state and have ignored the despair that countless number of people have been living through. We have an obligation and responsibility uh, to raise our voice. We cannot just ignore and say, well, I'm not the one that's inflicting the violence. You are aware of it, and so we need to be very much a part of it. So I encourage people, and I tell all groups, march with your children. This is a teaching moment. Um, if we want to make sure that our children are not doing something wrong at a march, then we should go and be at the march with our young people. My son joined me just about every night as I move through the march and speak to young people and ask them what are their thoughts and how do they want to see our country become. We got to be engaged at this time. This is a very significant moment in history. 
and who and what we are as a country. We've become a very mean place in these last few years. We no longer talk to each other. We no longer communicate. We yell at each other. Many families don't even sit down and have dinners anymore because they're afraid to get into disputes. It's time for us to reintroduce ourselves, number one, to ourselves, and number two, to those who are in our lives. We have been hijacked by social media, hijacked by Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. We need to reintroduce ourselves to what it is to be compassionate, loving, kind, and human beings once again. And this is a wake-up call for us as human beings. Thank you. Wow. I really appreciate that message. And I'm sure the many people watching, um, many people watching are appreciating the, the conversation. I can't tell you, you know, MGE, um, you both may not be aware, it's primarily 20s and 30s. A lot of young Jewish professionals living in the tri-state area. And, um, you know, we have a very diverse community ourselves. Uh, Jewish people don't all think alike either, just like black people or any other minority ethnicity. We all have our own opinions. The one thing that I think has changed in, in, um, in our time, um, I think, is what you just said, Eric. We just are not talking to each other. And we are defriending those from our Facebook pages with whom we disagree. And uh, we have networks now devoted to one perspective and not the other. No one's listening. Everybody's shouting and yelling. And we've just closed our ears to opposing views. And that's, it's such a terrible, terrible shame because that's the greatness of this country. This social experiment, the United States of America, was designed to be a melting pot for different groups, different ideologies, different visions as to what our society, but what brings us all together is that we respect opposing views. Um, and, you know, I, I just, it's, it's very difficult to imagine how we're going to fix real social problems like racism, bigotry, anti-Semitism, if we can't reach across and talk to each other. And one thing that we want to just emphasize, and we always emphasize this at MGE, and I, and I thank you both for being here and reflecting this view. And that is we have to have that basic modicum of love and respect for one another, even if we vehemently disagree with the other person's point of view. You know, when I grew up, I and mean, it's not so long ago, I'm a fairly young person, you know, you always had a Democrat and Republican, a conservative liberal arguing against each other. And, you know, I, I watch Fox, I watch CNN, they just keep bringing on the same people and so everyone can hear the same thing. And that's so detrimental. And I'll, I'll stop talking in a minute so we can give some opportunity for our viewers uh, to ask you guys some questions. But I just want to share one very important Jewish concept. You know, our most important rabbinic literature is called the Talmud. Um, and we have a tradition in the Talmud of arguing. You know, they say two Jews, three opinions. <laughs> okay. And, and we invite that because we believe that when two opposing views challenge each other and they butt heads, then you have a greater chance of arriving at the truth. When you have two, when you have a prosecution, a defendant, when you have a yin and a yang, a, a pro and a con. And that dialectic, what emerges from the dialectic ultimately is a finer sense of reality than if two people who agreed with each other. There's a great story in the Talmud of this one rabbi who had a chavruta, it's a study partner, and he learned with him for years and he died. The study partner of his died, a great rabbinic scholar, and he cried and he mourned, and they gave him the next rabbi to, to learn with. 
And he learned with him, and he was a brilliant scholar also, but he said to him, you just agree with everything I say. Rabbi so-and-so, the one who died, for every word I said, he had five arguments against me. And that's how I became a great scholar. And I, I just wanted to share that because it's a very important uh, Jewish teaching. And I think it's something that we're lacking. And if we can just get more conversations going between people who really disagree with each other, um, but that modicum of respect needs to be there. And obviously, racism has to be abolished. Um, bigotry and irrational fear of the other is something that in, in all of our faiths, in the Christian faith, in the Jewish faith, in, in, in any peace and good loving people realize how awful and damaging and just toxic um, racism is. I, I can't get the image of George Floyd of being choked out of my, and, and, and Eric, something you said before, the image that sticks with me also is not only his life being sucked out of him, but the officer that was watching. I just, I don't get it. I'm just having such a hard time wrapping my head around that. And I think what you just said before is very well taken that, okay, we weren't there, but we're here. We are here living in the United States in 2020. We are witness to what is happening. It's a complicated problem, but it is also somewhat simple. Racism, anti-Semitism, all forms of bigotry, all boil down to some kind of fear or hatred of the unknown. And we have to work together, faith communities. Reverend, I can't tell you how much I appreciate you being here. And Eric, as a former NYPD and now as a politician, how inspiring is it that you went into the police force after the experience you had? And I bless you and I give you the greatest success with your work in getting more black Americans to join the police force. We need more good cops in general, but perhaps if there were more black cops, we would have less um, bigotry and racism, at least within the police force. Um, okay, I'm getting off my soapbox now, but I, this has all been bottled up in me in the last... 30 minutes or so listening to you two. Um, I would like to take some questions if, if that's okay with you. Um, I have here, Khani's asking, what practical actions can we take as Brooklyn slash New York Jews to promote real change? Are there any specific suggestions that Reverend Dr. Ford, Borough President Eric Adams recommend that we can do, learn or promote? They want some, what we call in Hebrew, a little tachlis now. Like bottom line, what can we do? I think there are a couple of well, things. Uh, number one, uh, march together. Uh, join the fight. Uh, join the protest. Join the rally. Uh, I believe that, as you have seen, uh, we can make a difference if we speak out. Uh, as it was said earlier, there feels something that this feels different from other rallies and uh, other times where we've come together because it's not just African-Americans that's asking for change, but it is people of every race, creed, and color, and it goes past just the United States. If you go to Paris, France, they're now uh, also uh, marching and rallying behind Black Lives Matters all over the country, all over the world there are groups coming together to rally together. So I think uh, by coming out, making your voice heard, 
that becomes large. Also, voting. Uh, one of the big things, those elected officials, we have to be able to hold them responsible. And we have to get out and vote our officials in who hold our best interests at heart. Uh, on top of that, I believe also it is important to that we have communication and dialogue like this so we can so we can hear the difference of opinions as you said earlier and begin to really flesh out you know what are the real issues and we may never come to a a a a a neat clean uh, agreement where we can all say we're on one accord but we can say i hear you and i have empathy for what you're going through and I'm here to stand with you in this. Thank you so much. So marching together, join the protests, the rallies, the peaceful protests, voting, you said, and number three, communication and dialogue. Thank you. Eric. Yeah, and well said, Larry. And being intentional, I was at Malcolm David uh, School uh, in Brooklyn, and I was sitting down and I was watching uh, young Jewish scholars talking via Google Hangout and talking to students. Eric, try to speak up a little louder if you don't mind. I apologize. I can't hear. I was, uh, I was standing, I was at Malcolm David School in Brooklyn, and a Jewish scholars, a young people high school age, they were speaking to a group of students who were Chinese in China. They were speaking through uh, Google Hangout. And when they finished talking, I asked them, I said, how many of you have ever sat down and communicated with African-Americans or, or Mexican uh, young people or Hispanics? And they all said they never did. They were at high school level. Now, they were communicating with students across the globe in Beijing, but they would never talk to someone across the borough in Brownsville. Mm -hmm. And we act like we communicate other in a diverse city like New York, but in reality, we still live in silos. And so what I have put in place is something called Breaking Bread Building Bonds. A hundred dinners across the city, 10 people at each dinner, no two people from the same ethnic group or background or same culture, and they sit around and have a dinner and talk to each other, or communicate with each other, and learn from each other. So those young people who are listening to this show and say, what can they do? They can host one of those dinners. They can do it at a restaurant, at their home. They can do it at a, a yeshiva. They can do whatever they want. The dinners have been amazing to watch people for the first time sit across from a group that they never talked to before. It's those small incremental steps and levels that I think we need to do. Nothing does it better been over a dinner, duplicated value that a dinner brings, it would change our mind. We fear each other because we don't know each other, and we have to stop acting like we do know each other when we don't even talk to each other. And especially when we live so close to each other. And for those of you who couldn't hear Eric, what I made out from what he said, which is so powerful, just having sitting down and eating dinner with each other, I absolutely love that. Um, I guess we have to do that virtually until we either find a vaccine or get a little closer to be out of this uh, corona period. But um, I think that's something we could we could participate in an MGE. I'm I'm taking notes, guys. Um, 
having dinner with each other. Great question. Let's get another one. Can we create an interfaith group between the black and Jewish communities in, in New York City? I would imagine there are interfaith groups. MJE doesn't really uh, do this. This is not our, uh, uh, there are groups like the American Jewish Committee, uh, the Anti-Defamation League um, that are devoted, I know Jewish uh, organizations devoted to reaching out to other faith groups and other ethnicities and minorities. If um, Reverend or Eric, if you know of any groups like that, let, you know, share that. But, but um, there are, just to answer Lily's question, um, I think there are many groups that do that. If you want to, and if you want to add anything to that, okay, that's fine. I'm looking for different resources to educate myself. Are there any books, fiction, or notifications, or nonfiction? I'm sorry. Um, any books, any articles, any sermons, um, a pastor that that um, you know that 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 you would recommend. So I would start, I think the best place to start is looking at uh, King uh, and what he did with the civil rights movement um, in terms of his letter to the Birmingham, uh, uh, letter from the Birmingham jail. In terms of just this past week, as I was preaching, I quoted from his I Have a Dream speech, how, uh, that how America has a check and it has come back marked insufficient funds because America said that we should each have the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Well, as African-Americans, we have not had that opportunity. Uh, if you would look at something, uh, Michelle Alexander, uh, the book is called The New Jim Crow, and it talks about mass incarceration. Uh, that is another good book. Um, there is a group, uh, uh, there is a conference uh, that deals with social justice called the Samuel Proctor Conference. Uh, and if you, uh, if you Google them, you'll go to their website and they have a lot more information uh, on issues of social justice. What was the last thing, Reverend Samuel? What was that? Sa the Samuel DeWitt Proctor Conference. The Proctor Conference. If you okay. if you Google Proctor Conference, okay, we're gonna um, we're gonna send out an email, or maybe post some uh, links to some of these uh, some of these sources. That is that's great, Eric. If you want to add anything, um, we have we have another yeah. question. If you could wave a magic wand, um, what are your hopes for a future America? Um, what what would a future America look like? If you could, if you could change it right now, radically. Eric, what do you? What, 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 what? I think if I could, if I could change it right now, uh, my number one change is for us to communicate. If we can talk to each other, and talking communication is not waiting for me to finish a sentence, but you can tell me how wrong I am but it's to be a deep li listener. If we can move to a place of seeking to understand so we can be understood, I believe we're listening, we're living a different America and that is my hope. And I think that is you know, uh, something we could strive for no matter how difficult life is, no matter how difficult the situation is, if you can communicate, you can navigate any difficult or challenge moment, challenging moment. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much, Reverend. 
one more, if I can wave a magic wand, um, it would be a community where we all got along. Uh, there's a there's a saying, can't we all just get along? Uh, a community where uh, skin, where we aren't judged by the color of our skin, as Dr. King said, by the, but by the content of our character. Uh, that's the type of world that I would want my daughter to grow up on in, and I'm hoping that we can affect change so that can occur. Amen. Amen. <laughs> um, let's see. We have time for one or two other questions. We need to come together in diverse groups. Thank you, Lisa. Uh, you're getting a couple of more amens to that. Um, any other questions from our viewers that would like uh, to weigh in to ask Adam Hyman, what organizations would Reverend Ford and Borough President Adams recommend supporting financially? Uh, what, what, what would you, uh, people wanted to write a check. There's an amazing you can't, mention, you can't mention your church, Reverend. Sorry. <laughs> tonight, tonight was supposed to be our annual. You should know tonight was supposed to be MG's annual dinner, but um, we thought it'd be more appropriate to hold a conversation like this. And MG's annual dinner is going to be two weeks from tonight, so we'll be bothering everybody for their donations then. Um, but if, if, um, is there a cause that you think is particularly effective, Eric? Maybe something within the police force or. Um, any recommendations? There's an, there's an amazing organization called Campaign Against Hunger. An amazing woman, Dr. Samuels, she fed close to 3 million New Yorkers who fell on hard time. Uh, you can go online and find her website. She's an amazing woman. She has really dedicated her life to help people in need. And over the last period of uh, months or weeks, when coronavirus has been here, she has delivered and served over 3 million people with a small group. I encourage the young people to go to volunteer with her, help give out food packages. It is really rewarded to do so. And if anyone wants to do one of the dinners I spoke about, they should email me at askeric at brooklynvp dot nyc dot gov that's ask eric at brooklyn vp dot nyc dot gov and they could join the team of hosting the dinners together but the campaign against hunger is an amazing organization and you know your dollars are going to help everyday people and okay so let me just reiterate that eric thank you campaign against hunger what's the name of this woman Dr. Melanie Samuels. Melanie Samuels. Okay, great. And um, and the Brooklyn and hosting dinners. Tell me the e tell me your your email again. BP. Is ask Eric A S K E R I C at Brooklyn BP dot NYC dot gov. Okay, I got it. And wait, the first few words again, I'm sorry. A-Z? A-S-K. A-S-K. Ask Eric. Ask Eric at Brooklyn 
vp.nyc.gov. And that's for the hosting yes. dinners. Yes, if anybody's okay, interested, send the dinners. Okay, Rachel, Rachel just posted it from our staff. Thank you, Rachel. Okay, that's great. Any other questions? It's getting a little late. And well, let uh, me answer that question as well. Since oh, please, I can't, please. Rabbi, since I can't mention my church, let me <laughs> say the NAACP. Uh, I've been working with them lately, uh, and they are writing policy uh, so that we can so that we can try and have change here. Uh, so, if you would like to support uh, every every, there is a local chapter in every city. Uh, and I would encourage you to participate in the NAACP. Uh, you can be, uh, you can have an alliance with them uh, and participating, helping change on the local level with your NAACP. Okay, thank you so much. All right, so we're, we're gonna actually, Maya from our staff just, just uh, commented that we're gonna send out um, some of this information, uh, the, in, the, 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 the books, the articles, the sermons, uh, the campaign against hunger, um, the, the dinners, all of this, we'll, we'll send this out to everybody who's been watching here. This is so, so truly, truly helpful. I will say one thing, and we're looking into this now because there are a number of people in the Jewish community that have are reticent to, to get more involved in the grassroots movement called Black Lives Matter because there seems to be some indication, and I don't really know, honestly. I haven't done enough research. But there seems to be some um, aspect of their work that uh, uh, tends to be very anti-Israel, even supportive of the what's, what's called the Israel um, uh, Divestment Program, uh, which seeks to isolate Israel. And uh, you know, I've spoken to a couple of people. It seems as though that Black Lives Matter doesn't really have a. It, it, it's so grassroots. It seems that it doesn't necessarily have a governing board or a policeman, if you will, to make sure that it stays focused on its mission and doesn't get co-opted by other groups, just like some of these rallies. I don't want to end on a negative note, but I know that people were asking me to ask you, I, and, and you might not know, um, and, and I, I don't really 100%. I've just been hearing rumors flying around. Uh, any credence to that that you might be aware of? Well, there, so there are many local chapters. There's a national chapter, and there's a local chapter. And so what I would like to do, uh, the young man that's running the Brooklyn chapter is a young man named Anthony Beckford. Uh, either you can bring him on, interview him, and you can hear firsthand from him, or you could host a Zoom or a dinner. Uh, I'm sure he will be more than willing to come in and speak, and he can answer on his, his own behalf of exactly what are their thoughts around this topic. I've been to Israel uh, twice. Uh, I think that my relationship with the Jewish community in Brooklyn is an amazing relationship. Uh, we do great partnership together. Uh, I would not associate with myself with anyone that was anti-Semitic in any way. And I think that the best way to answer that question is to ask Anthony to come in and speak with him directly. I, I would love that because, you know, it, it would be a terrible shame uh, if A, wasn't so true, or B, it was some other group that inserted itself again and, again, taints an otherwise noble movement. And um, I think it would be good for Jewish people to get the real MS, as we say, the Hebrew word for truth on that particular issue. 
Um, I, don't, I don't know, Reverend, if you have any knowledge on that. It's a very specific kind of question. But uh, I really want to thank you. Uh, Reverend, do you have anything to say about that? If not, it's cool. I think Eric Adams uh, summed it up best is best to go right to the source. 100%. <laughs> and you're not even the politician. Okay. <laughs> uh, I want to thank uh, both of you. I can't tell you how um, inspirational this was to hear from you, Reverend. And I, I bless you in your, in, your, in your holy work with your community. Uh, Stanford is a very lucky community to have you. And Eric, you, uh, uh, it is clear why you have attained the success in life that you have attained. Um, my yarmulke is off to you uh, for the extraordinary self-sacrifice. You remind me, honestly, of Batman because when he's one of my favorite superheroes, because when Batman had that terrible trauma as a child of the bats, when he fell into the well, he spent the rest of his life confronting that traumatic experience, taking it on and then turning it into his greatest strength and weapon. And uh, it seems like you've done exactly the same thing by going right into the lion's den, right back into the place that caused you so much pain. And uh, I have the greatest respect and regard for anyone who can do to that and, and any police officer simply by putting on um, the blue uh, uniform puts themselves in harm's way to protect us. And God bless you and, and you, Reverend, for your wonderful work on behalf of your respective communities. Uh, you've been very, very enlightening. This is the beginning of what uh, I would like to have many conversations. We want to put together a special panel on uh, Jews of color because we have uh, blacks within the Jewish community also and the experiences that they have. And I think it would be great to get to the bottom of this question uh, in terms of Black Lives Matter and the BDS, any kind of association with anti-Israel. Um, uh, I'll be in touch with you, Eric, about Andy. That sounds great. I love the dinners. I love all the suggestions um, uh, that you gave, Reverend, for us to read about. I'm also a huge, huge fan of Dr. King's sermons and, uh, and his writings. And uh, the two of you should stay safe and continue to do the wonderful, wonderful work you do on behalf of your communities and really thank you for enlightening our community and allowing us to hear you and to hear your experiences when you were younger and what you've done ever since to make a difference in the world. Thank you both and God bless you both. Um, I wanna thank everyone for tuning in and I wanna thank Rabbi Ezra Cohen who worked really hard on putting this panel together with Maya and uh, with Rachel and the rest of the MGE staff, Lunch and Learn, tomorrow, every day this week at 12.30, and continuing classes, Friday night services, Kabbalat Shabbat, 7 o'clock, and Ma'ariv, the concluding evening service on Saturday night. Thank you all for being here, and again, thanks to our very, very special panel, to Eric and to the Reverend. Have a great night, guys. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of The Wildcast. Subscribe to our show on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or your favorite podcast app. If you haven't already, please leave us a review on the Apple Podcast Store. It only takes a minute, and when you do, it helps others discover the show. Music from today's episode comes courtesy of Yosef Wilds. For more information about the Manhattan Jewish Experience, please visit our website at jewishexperience.org 
or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Thanks again for joining us.